2: Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast and a whole load of badass. I'm Harriet Minter and I'm here with Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton and this is the best of our talk radio radio show. This week we are looking at the news including why a bill to make upskirting illegal did not get through the Houses of Parliament and should somebody say you are looking good? What do we think about that? Plus, it's been a year since the fire at Grenfell Tower we meet one of the locals who tells us about what the community is feeling today and what he hopes for in the future.
0: One, two, three, four.
2: First of all, it is, of course, our news stories of the week, the stories that have caught our eye.
3: Uh, Emma, what has caught your eye this week? So it was uh, an article that was on the pool about um, Father's Day cards and the article was finally a Father's Day card for single mums. I don't know if you've seen now, I feel like greetings cards are getting much more diverse in their messaging and and there's more and more cards that are coming out now that are aimed at um, basically single mums. So things like a card that says, if you do both jobs, you should get both cards. (laughs) Um, But it just got me thinking about the sort of the Mother's Day and the Father's Day. And I don't know about you two, but I kind of feel like we shouldn't have a Mother's Day and a Father's Day. I feel like we should have a parent's day or a family day. But I don't feel like we should have a Father's Day and a Mother's Day. Interesting. That. Mother's well, day, I'm trying Father's to day? work out
4: what the origin is. I'm guessing it was something religious. I uh, reckon it was Clinton cards
3: and a so marketing fa- department. Oh, yeah,
4: no, Father's Day is definitely Clinton cards in the marketing department.
2: Mother's Day, I think, was traditionally the one day a year that mothers literally got off. That was how it was created. So it was a societal thing, yeah. Okay. Um, So the thing that I found really interesting about this was I was in a card shop buying a card for my dad the other day and I was looking at the cards on display for fathers and I just thought it was really bizarre. So the offerings all said things like, Happy Father's Day, Dad. That's enough emotion for now. Let's go back to the football. (laughs) Or I suppose I should send you this card. Now can you lend me a fiver? There was... There wasn't a single card that was like, Happy Father's Day, Dad, I really love you. Or Happy Father's Day, Dad, you're doing a great job. Nothing positive. It was all very hashtag fragile masculinity. What was it? Yeah. Interesting. And so when I when you say you shouldn't have a mother's day and a father's day, I actually think parenting is really hard. It's really hard. I think it's quite sad. We only get one day a year to celebrate them anyway. Um, So I think it's
3: great. Have a Mother's Day. Have a Father's Day. But don't you think it's a bit insensitive to like, I I don't know, if you've grown up without a dad or your dad's been a total, or, you know, you have a parent who's just not been a great parent. And then it's kind of in your face, isn't it? Father's Day and Mother's Day. Now, what do you think? Well, I just did some research.
4: (laughs) Mothering Sunday (laughs) is the fourth Sunday of Lent. Uh, Although it's often called Mother's Day, it has no connection to the American festival of that name traditionally it was a day when children mainly daughters who had gone to work as domestic servants were given a day off to visit their mother and family ah. and then transversely father's day again a u.s creation um was celebrated in washington uh, from 1910 a woman by the name of sonra dodd came up with the idea of honoring and celebrating her father while listening to a mother's day sermon at church so again this has come via google so um <laughs> thanks google i think we need to you know take it with a pinch of salt but i i'm slightly with you em i i think we should just celebrate the people that raise us because them. it might not actually be your mother or father yeah. that, that, that raised yeah. you yeah yeah so why not just have a what day to celebrate exactly there's no grandma's day really no i guess you can lump it in with mother's day but then, do we have to create days for everybody? No, and so I just think actually, just using it as an, op- as an opportunity
3: yeah. to celebrate. You could have family day. Why not turn Mother's Day you? and Father's Day into Family Day? What happened if you grew up without a family? We you you have to cater for everyone. No, no, right. Right. No, I think
4: family's so fine. Whoever rate, right, I'm saying who, the unit that. If you grew up in a children's yeah, home, that's just still yeah, a silly. Yeah, but you still have friends you. that you exactly. would call your family.
3: Hang on a minute, You're Blue, your dog, is your family. <laughs> I could have a day for Blue, well, yeah. that's true. Yes. Would, you, know, you could have a nice family outing, the two of you, in some woodland somewhere. <laughs> I feel sure <laughs> family day is the way forward. People
4: at home are like, this is absolute rubbish. We need to celebrate Dad. Wow. We need to celebrate Mum. Tweet I can, us I can and let us know. Now. But yeah. we think, let's turn it into family day. I'm with you, Emma. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. don't know.
2: I like Mother's and Father's Day. We want to know what you think. Do you think we should keep Mother's Day, Father's Day? Or should we just have a family day? You can tweet us at Talk Radio. Uh, so this week, we're talking about all things radio because it's our world on a Saturday night.
4: <laughs> Matt, <laughs> what has been in the radio news this week? So... Uh, Shock horror, the radio <laughs> industry needs to reflect the UK's diversity, says the media regulator Ofcom. Uh, so ethnic minorities, disabled people and women are all underrepresented in the UK's radio industry. Um, we know that women on radio, uh, women speaking to women on on uh, to each other on radio, it's a very small figure in proportion. So like 4%. 4%. It might have slightly changed since that study, but it's probably still... It's under 10. Yeah. Um, even though we get lots of people tweeting us saying, When's this, when is it man's hour? Yeah. yeah and we're <laughs> like, just, 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 yeah, just look, hour. look at the rest of the schedule <laughs> on most radio stations. But anyway, so according to uh, Ofcom, just 6% of staff in the sector, in the radio sector, are non white, which is far below the UK population average. But also, when it comes to women, only 37% of senior management roles in this industry are, are, are held by women, and they're absolutely absent from the boardroom. And so, if we think about the population as a whole, we need to shake things up.
2: Okay. Mm, right. So, we did ask you what you thought about Father's Day and whether or not we should keep it. Steve from Croydon has some views. Hi, Steve. Steve.
1: Oh, hi there. Yeah. I was listening to you, girls. And I've listened to you before, if it's been oh, girls you. on before. And I thought you were really good. But I You're thought happy. straight away, a little bit of man bashing coming in. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, here we go. You know. <laughs> and you've got to remember, there are a lot of terrible mothers out there and a lot of terrible women that do cheat and having an affairs and all that and all the rest of it. So, you know, it does get a bit,
2: but we a were... bit boring. I don't think we're even the man bashing. All the time. We're equal ops, so we're saying no Mother's Day or no Father's Day, just a family day. What do you think about that?
1: I know, but you sort of kind of did back it up with about, you know, oh, but Mother's Day was traditional. <laughs> <laughs> and the pricing, you know... <laughs> But no, I think uh, it's nice for both to be recognised. And let's uh, be honest if you've got a mother, bad mother, or a bad father, you're not going to buy them a, a card. Yeah.
4: yeah.
3: But then you do you, don't you think that's it's it a bit works. insensitive for people who perhaps haven't got fathers or they've got not particularly great fathers? And then everywhere on social media and society is all banging on about Father's Day. Do you think it's a bit insensitive?
1: Well, it's the same with mothers, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I know you're bringing fathers up, but keep bringing the fathers up, but it's the same with the mothers. You know, I, I had a terrible mother myself that took everything out on me because she didn't like my father. Yeah. So you get a lot of that. You know, I was a child. You know, I didn't deserve it. But anyway, getting back more light-hearted. <laughs> uh, you know, I've now got three lovely daughters that love me unconditionally, Aww. and they don't have a problem buying me a card. Just uh, a card, Steve? Loving... Just a
4: card? Not, not a uh, mug?
1: Uh, or a... Pre- uh, yeah, and yeah, I've got my Father's Day mug from last year. <laughs> there we go. Yeah.
4: What else? Yeah. What else are you some expecting? gifts, some breakfast try and, put and like bed. A mug
1: in it to like <laughs> have a little witty thing there, either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a nice mug with nice words on it. Yeah. Oh.
2: Do you think, you know, Steve, so, when so... you were getting Father's Day cards, did they? I was saying that Father's Day cards. When I was looking at them, they are all a bit like Happy Father's Day, Dad. But now let's move on. You know, they weren't very loving. Do you think that's true of the cards you get?
1: Uh, not at all. Not yeah. from last year. I mean, I could, I could dig them out. If you gave me three minutes, I would <laughs> dig them out. No, they're very loving indeed. Uh, you know, they're, and you know, I've got picture frames with tools on and DIY and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, the, the usual ones, but giving lists and taxi driver and all the rest of it. Uh, but I tell my girls not to get me uh, presents anyway. Do you know what I mean? Because I always want them to save their money.
4: Bless you. Know, you know, but...
1: Uh, but, you know, yeah, a card is nice, but I suppose that's one thing I did get off my mum. She always liked to, she always wanted a card, see? Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm in my 50s now, so my mum's gone gone there and my yeah. dad's gone, funny enough. You know, they passed away. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's. Uh...
4: So you're basically saying, Steve, keep Mother's Day, keep Father's Day, because actually both parents could be a bit pants.
1: Yes,
5: exactly. <laughs> okay.
1: exactly. And it's had the fairness, yeah. And it's had the fairness back. But also, I would like to say, if I'm allowed to say a bit more, uh-huh. I would like to get back to a bit more tradition. You know, I mean, things were, you know, all right. I'm not saying go back to the 70s, uh, you know, and all the rest of it. Uh, I think things were happier then. You know uh all this forcing women to go to work and by the <laughs> way like as well, see we're doing so well we're doing so well <laughs> no, yeah, no no but if i could just say oh, this God. yeah because i don't care what people think of me yeah, but i'm just being a human being but what i'd like to say is my mother always went to work because uh, uh she wasn't with my father uh so she always went to work but in those days i i the, I always wanted uh, my mum to be at home like all the other b- boys and girls at school, you know? So, uh, and, funny enough, my oldest daughter, because I've got three daughters, my oldest daughter is a nanny. And I just think it's, you know, when that little boy or little girl falls over uh, and is crying, who's the first person who picks them up and, and comforts them? It's the nanny. It's not even the mum. Then the mum gets in at uh, 6 or the dad gets in at, you know, 6, 7 o'clock or whatever... And I, I I, think this is...
2: It's an interesting often. question, is more, though, isn't it, Steve? Why I'd couldn't like it be the I know dad? I'm going off
1: the subject a bit, but is it more important to answer phone calls and for Goldman Sachs or something and to put something in the computer? Is that more better than being a, being a parent?
2: I'm not sure that it is, Steve, but I would ask the same question, says, so surely if it's more important to be a parent than answer phone calls at Goldman Sachs, isn't that not the same for men and women? Yes. So shouldn't
3: dads be staying Great at home? Yeah. And
1: also it's a bad choice. Well, no, why should it be? Because... The tradition was, I mean, you know, if, if you got in the animal kingdom.
5: <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, we only got three Steve. hours, Steve. Steve. When we're relying on yeah. lions to yeah. make our arguments, Steve, we're going to have to let you go. Uh,
2: but we did like your point about keeping Mother's Day and yeah. Father's Day. Thank you. Thanks, uh, so Mother's Day and Father's Day. <laughs> Steve thinks we should keep them. I think we should keep them, although now I realise I'm starting with Steve. I'm like, well, was I right? (laughs) (laughs) But we'd love to know what you think. Tweet us at Talk Radio and tell us. Um, But now we're going to be talking about upskirting. So the issue of upskirting, if you don't know what that is, uh, it's essentially taking a picture of someone's, I'm going to say nether regions, Mm -hmm. up their skirt without them knowing. Who does this and why? It seems wonkers, but apparently it's on the increase. If you were listening to the show about a month or so ago, you would have heard Gina Martin, who has been campaigning to make upskirting illegal in England Worlds in line with Scotland, talking to us about why it is so difficult to get it through Parliament. Yesterday, the bill finally went to Parliament for a vote and it got voted down by one MP. Much to the horror of everyone. So this was Conservative MP Christopher Chope. And essentially it's a Prime Member's Bill. So it goes to the House. Everyone kind of agrees with it and they just vote it through. What happened yesterday was, first of all, Conservative MP Philip Davis on a completely different issue. Just talked just talked for 144 minutes just because he could uh so that by the time 44 minutes they they do time this stuff two hours yeah by the time it got to the upskirting bill there wasn't a lot of time to debate it It had to go straight to a vote and then parliament was done for the day christopher chope voted against it and the whole bill was derailed ladies what do we think about this now
4: well (laughs) (laughs) slapped wrists somewhere um You're not angry. I
3: was really proper
4: angry when I read this today. But the bottom line is, the bill's going back on the sixth of July, and now everyone knows what the tactics are. There are ways of getting around it. I think what it does highlight is the things that MPs and other people in in the houses can do to derail bills. I don't think anyone thought you could just talk your way through to stop a bill. Getting onto the floor, I wonder how many other things this is affected. But anyway, that's a, that's a digression. It will go back to the house on the sixth of sixth of July, and it means that actually uh it needs to be the first bill that goes to the floor. It means that MPs will need to turn up.
2: Yeah, but do you know, what? I'm I'm annoyed because Christopher Chope, Philip Davis, they get paid roughly seventy-seven thousand pounds a year mm-hmm. to represent the UK and even if they disagree with it what I want them to do is not the UK and not the UK their constituency what I want them to do is think about what does this bill mean why is it important who in my constituency does it affect how does it affect them and give it some general thought Christopher Chope just doesn't like private members bills so just kind of votes against them as a act of parliamentary terrorism essentially Uh, and Philip Davis just doesn't like anything to do with women so votes against it just because
4: So, but again, it's allowed. But it shouldn't be. If people know... So everyone knows that he votes against private members bills and it's allowed. Yeah. Something is... Silly as that, but it's allowed.
3: Well, the thing is, it is allowed and you can kind of go, well, it kind of needs to be because it's a discussion. But what this guy does, Christopher Chope, is he just disagrees with every single one. So he has this dogmatic mindset around it. And that's what winds me up because he is in a position of influence and power and can create positive change. And because of his dogmatic mindset, he's just going, I, I just, it rile r- r- me. I really just want it to go around his house but have something that people can <laughs> can do people can campaign and not vote him in next time but this is so this is what actually
2: what makes me really angry which is if you're sitting in a relatively safe seat for either party Mm -hmm. as much as anyone campaigns to not vote someone when you've got a thousands and thousands majority you're probably safe for at least another couple of terms until people really push it Mm -hmm. but what the selection committees could start doing is saying hang on why are we continually selecting somebody to represent us who clearly is wasting taxpayer money? Mm-hmm. They're wasting taxpayer money. And yet they don't.
4: They just let them uh-huh. back in again. But is this the start of something? So we we don't know. So on the other things that he's voted against, and one of them was to not pardon um, a racist. So I'm I'm okay but that. But do we
2: know that he voted for that because he believes in it or just because yeah. he didn't
4: want to? Either way, Michael Queens. Uh this this because of social media and everything else has come to the fore it sparks a different conversation we don't we didn't know that he basically just voted no for every private members bill and now that we do it will be on someone's radar in the same way that with everything else that's going on in the world as soon as things come to the fore as soon as things a spotlight is shone on something people have to change their behavior people have to change their ways and the people that are in power or that are above him i.e. um uh the party chairman there will you know a call will be made and it's like you know buck up your ideas or we'll need to think differently about your seat i don't know that it will quite frankly i particularly in
2: the conservative party you can be a donkey but as long as you've got your blue ribbon in the right place they
4: like you <laughs> oh, it's just infuriating it all, is infuriating. Parties, all parties.
2: Uh, we would love to know what you think Christopher Chope. did he anger you or do you think he's got a right to behave as you wish tweet us at talk radio tell us what you think of the fact the upskirting legislation couldn't
3: go through Emma
2: why can't we tell you you're looking good what's
3: upsetting you about it well do you know what I found an article and I was like I want to talk about this because as a aging badass <laughs> um,
4: aging every, everyone aging. is
3: aging though. every yeah. well this is it Every everyone is aging but as women we are judged by our looks and our worth is determined on our looks and there was an article that was on the cuts that I think is a, a great website and this woman who's over 50 actually she was saying don't bother telling me how good I look because I know what you really mean for my age you mean face it to tell a woman over 50 that she looks good is condescending like telling a four-year-old that she's so big or a dog that he so smart, and I just it really resonated with me because I, like, I don't know, people will compliment me. Or, oh God, I didn't realize how old you were, and I've always been a bit like, oh, okay, it's a positive thing, and then I'm like, no, I'm just playing into the whole anti-aging. You can't age as a woman, like you, can't, you're just not allowed to age, and like if you, you're only valid in society if you still look good as an older woman. So I have two things to this, which is one, you. If-
2: I don't think saying you look really good is saying you look really
3: good for your age. It's not I don't if it's think coming it's from thing. you, but I would say there's a. I, I'd say there's a lot of people that would compliment you. And it is coming from a like, oh, didn't expect you to look like that at that age. So
2: my other point on this is a few weeks ago, we were talking about Amy Schumer's film. I feel pretty. I yeah, that's what it's called. Yeah. And I said, I find it really condescending that we just tell women, doesn't matter what size you are, so long as you believe that you feel confident, that's okay. And you were like, no, 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 it really doesn't, it's all about mindset. Is this not exactly
3: the same thing, but about age? It doesn't matter how old you are. It's just about how you feel about it. Uh, it is, but I th- it's about society's value that it places on women and how you lose your value as you get older based on your looks. And I think that's a different point to the point I raised about that film, <laughs> Harriet, <laughs> which is more about the fact that because society values you as a woman, you put a lot of emphasis on your looks and you're very caught up in your looks. And if women got rid of that, which is what the film was about, you would be a much happier, you'd have a much happier time. So that was my point on that film. And what I'm saying is, I can totally forget about it. Like, you know, I do, but ultimately, society is still constantly telling me that as I get older, I am not as desirable. I know.
5: I tell you what. I mean, I
4: still think I am, but. I'm saying you look good, it's being equated with then saying. You look good for your age. You look good for your age, therefore you're not. um... Yeah. So I just think this is Emma's mindset. But what do I know? no 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 I so I, you... i'm processing it. so basically i'm like look there are some people that are 35 and they look old they look old they look haggard they look like they need a holiday and so if they told me they were 35 and i thought they were 45 i'd be like oh okay i i think so it di- it's this, it's the same difference whether i say you look great or i don't say anything at all Well, we're going to keep debating,
2: but we'd love to know what you think. If somebody tells you you look good and you're of a certain age, is it a compliment or not? Tweet us and tell us at Talk Radio, would you take it as you look good for your age, or would you just take the compliment? We'd love to know.
3: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
0: Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
3: Across the UK, online and on DAV. (laughs) Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio.
2: Now, June 14th marked the one-year anniversary of the Grenfell Tower fire. And a year on, uh, the investigation is still going on. There's still anger and upset and hurt within the community. Um, And we're still thinking about how we all as a city and as a country process it. So this week, we were really honoured to have local youth worker... And a man who has been capturing the stories, I guess, of locals within that community, Uh, Daniel Rennick, came and joined us and talked about the impact of the Grenfell Fire a year on. Hi, Daniel.
5: Hi there.
2: Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about... I guess how the community is feeling a year on, and 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 what the atmosphere is like in the area at the moment.
5: I mean, I think especially after the 14th, there was a very big build-up in the area. Yeah. Um it's been a very emotionally charged year for a lot of people. So I think that what happened on Thursday was a really uh, it meant a lot, and it kind of feels that people are kind of winding down a little bit now, and there's to some. To some end, the kind of need for respite after all of this, because it's quite hard to build up, especially with people flashbacks or the media engagement and the amount of media retention. It very much feels like it was last year. So, and I think the community have dealt very positively with that actually.
2: And that it is interesting you mentioned flashbacks there, because obviously one of the things that we know is that lots of people from that community are suffering from PTSD, there's anxiety, there's stress. Do you think the media attention and the build-up around last week, has that has it helped with the grief in any way or or do you think people are still processing
5: it? I think it depends. Mm-hmm. It really does depend on the journalist and the nature of the piece that they're doing and what they seek to achieve from what they're doing and how that end product looks when the community look at it. Uh, sometimes we've had great pieces done and yeah. sometimes we've had horrible hit pieces done and it's just it's very hard to know. Yeah. And that kind of breeds tensions, but the media attention itself has been uh, voyeuristic at points, and it has sought to, kind of, it has it has led to community issues, right? Grandfather yeah. United kind of had to organise amongst themselves the bereaved and survivors because of the onslaught of media attention. And I know many survivors who had to change their number countless times since the fire because people would give out their numbers, and once the me- once the media had your number, it just yeah. continued. And that level of harassment when you were going through all of those things was not helpful so I mean you can tell a very negative story of the media but at the same time there's a positive story we can tell as well it just depends.
3: Um, That was one of my questions to Jackie actually was um is the media giving us you know the people like us who are not necessarily involved in the community get, getting out the right stories in the right way and I know that you've produced documentaries but and there's been some documentaries uh, a year on but do you think we're, we're getting the right stories do you feel that people are, are, are being heard and the media is not necessarily distorting those in the wrong way I think
5: that some of the documentaries produced over the, for, for the year have been exceptional I think that Grenfell the, BBC documentary an hour and a half long is actually exceptional in its depiction of the community. I think it's very sensitive and it covers most angles very well. Uh, The Guardian's 15 minute documentary that it released on residents of the Solchester Estate was also very touching beautifully filmed. Um, But then you have things like Andrew O'Hagan's The Tower which is abysmal in my opinion. Um, It makes some serious points. It tells some home truths but it tells the council's narrative more than it does anything else and it... uh, feels very uh, exploitative to the people who believed him when he said that he wasn't going... He wanted to tell and champion the community story. A lot of people read that piece and had a very... But they were hurt by it, and I think it's important that we go forward with a level of understanding that not all journalists are going to be as sensitive to what the community wants told, and that some people will want to tell their story. Um,
2: And there is also the council's story, which is... As a journalist, if you're telling one side, you have to represent the other. Um, We heard from Jackie just before that she really feels the council is kind of turning up and paying lip service to listening, but they're not really then acting on it. Has that been your experience as well?
5: I mean, I think there has to be a deeper analysis of the council, mm-hmm. right? Like Andrew Hagen goes to some level there, right? There's yeah. some stuff that he says that's quite sobering and it's worth engaging with, but it's a conversation, right? Now, what we look at with the council, with the council, is the council have viscerated its services for a very long period of time. It has a culture of using the third sector as a conduit to mm-hmm. fulfil its obligations of state. But those lines of communication broke detrimentally after the fire and very few uh, services actually had an engagement with the council in any meaningful sense. And so there was this kind of autonomy, this work of necessity that was done with no coordination from local or central government. But the position of the local authority was not exactly helped by central government, who made promises that it, the, the local authority couldn't keep and didn't make central government funds available so I mean there's a definite I mean I would not by any means want to absolve responsibility of RBKC yeah. but you have a very complicated picture there that really does challenge central government
2: Can you give us some example of promises you think were made but not kept?
5: So take the housing people within three weeks that Theresa mm-hmm. May said right? now uh, in the BBC documentary there's Robert Atkinson, the leader of the Labour group in RBKC, is talk, talks about calling Padgett Brown after he sees Theresa May Saylor. And he says, how the hell are we going to do this? Or how the hell are you going to do this? And he said, I don't know, I wasn't told. Right? Now that it tells you everything about that moment in time. Now there is, a, there is a chaotic scene on the ground, and RBKC have a lot to answer for, the TMO have a lot to answer for, but central government certainly didn't help. And they, I mean, look, at the end of the day, there were offers made to a lot of the survivors uh, of housing, but they rejected them. Right? Why would they reject them? Because they didn't want to live in high-rise estates or they didn't want a view of Grenfell or mm-hmm. they had uh, family with access issues or they were worried about the lifts or whatever it was. So nobody wants to be moved so fast unless you're going to make certain things available. And there's been so much misreportage of all of those things that, I mean, it's going to be a process for people to find a long-term home. And it is scandalous how long it has taken, but it certainly was not helped by government rhetoric.
2: Do you think there's now almost become a bit of a culture of actually we've waited so long for this now I'm not gonna move unless it's right. And I you, the kind of the goodwill there has gone because people feel like they've been mucked around.
5: I think that's just I mean, it's the nature of tenancies now. Yeah. People are fearful, right? Because there's an attack more widely on social housing. The conservatives talk about nudging people or we talk about turning generation Rent into generation buy and all of these kind of platitudes. And we have <laughs> shared ownership schemes, we're always, always encouraging people. And the thing is that people are in, in council housing are feeling like they're being written out because you get these short-term tenancies now, everything's changing. So when something like Grenfell happens, you're going to be very careful as to what you sign up to or what temporary actually means. right? And I think these fears and the culture, the political climate that we exist within in regards to social housing hasn't exactly helped the situation. And I think that in many ways there could have been central government intervention, both in regards to the insulation and cladding that was on 300 public buildings, many of them schools, hospitals, and house high-rise estates across the country. And when Theresa May finally, after bending to the pressure from Grenfell United, mm-hmm. actually makes those funds available, she takes it from the housing budget itself. So there's no new funds made available. And that's shocking, to because mm-hmm. when we're dealing with the Grenfell situation on the ground, it was at that time that Theresa May makes a billion available to the DUP, Right? Mm, so yeah. what, are, what, are we do, what are we talking about when we talk about political priorities here? There's clearly something coming from central government that means that you pay lips like this, but at the same time, you don't make the funds available and if you do you're going to take it from the same pot yeah. so we're going to have less houses now because we've had this scandal of deregulation that has led to combustible materials being wrapped around buildings, it's insane
3: mm. D- Emma um, so some of the can you tell us a bit about the documentary that you that you made called Failed by the State
5: mm-hmm. so me and Ishmael Francis Murray Ishmael was born in Grenfell Tower he was supposed to be here today When uh, there's a very vocal kind of member of the estate still um and we engaged a couple of months after the fire a friend of ours introduced us saying that we were talking similar stuff we talked about blogging or vlogging or making a podcast or something and then a uh, new company that my friends were starting up approached me um and they uh they at first i was supposed to get loki the uh rapper to kind of headed it up but his schedule didn't work so it became ish at the last minute i literally called ish on a friday night we began shooting on the monday and we didn't really prep it so we shot for five days and it was this pretty much a kind of reflection of a five-day period though it doesn't really do that in the film we separate into three parts and we try and deal with the antecedents to the fire which is a kind of history of managed decline and social cleansing and framing that and then looking at Grenfell and the failure of state. And then afterwards looking at the silent marches and the quest for justice. So we kind of try and build into three 10-minute pieces. Oh, well, it comes to about 24 minutes in total, actually. So it's it's quite short. Um, but uh, it's the, the reception for it has been relatively small. I mean, it was a startup company funded by RT that put it onto YouTube. And we got a couple hundred thousand views. but. Wow.
3: Yeah. Uh, Great that you've got the power to tell the stories. Be impressed by that. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit more about these silent marches? Because I didn't realise the silent marches. Whether that might have been ignorance on my part, that these silent marches were happening till I watched some of the documentaries in the past couple of weeks. That so this is a silent march that happens every month. Is it?
5: It's on the fourteenth of the fourteenth of every month. Yeah. Right. So the routes changed a couple of times. Uh, the first silent march happened on the Monday after the fire. It was organised by a number of individuals. Uh, Ismail Playgrove. Uh, uh, kind of led the charge but then after that on the 14th of July there was a silent march that went from Almanar the mosque down to the wall of truth and then a new route was taken up and Zayed Cred, who has organised the marches ever since has kind of taken ownership of that and really done a great job of kind of carrying the community and building a sense of unity and it is very much in the kind of history of nonviolent struggle and he sees that and he's taken out a lot of the more vitriolic language and build something that is more unified and it's kind of it's very interesting because it suits the mood of north kensington at this moment in time and the affected communities people have to bear in mind that a lot of the people who are affected by this are faith-based communities and so you evoke god when you evoke a socialism or a leftism or a burning of theresa may like the the vitriolic and angered response isn't actually the one that most people feel there is this kind of there's a deeper spiritual thing and the silent march manages to tap into that in ways that typical protest doesn't. And it's really it's very empower it's very powerful. It's mm. very there's something different to it. And today I went on Justice for Grenfell's march and people shouted down the streets and people And people spoke, but it wasn't. They didn't have the same. It was good. I mean, it's important. I think both have their role to play. But there's something so profound about that Mm, silence. Something
3: very interesting about silence versus that very heightened emotion for having perhaps a even yeah deeper impact.
5: I think people, people respond differently and it brings out different communities and people feel more included when they don't necessarily feel that they're being sloganized or mm-hmm. made a conduit for another radical leftist organisation. Because mm. that's a lot of the time what happens. You go out because you genuinely care about an issue, but you're holding a placard that's a political parties and you realise you're part of a bigger agenda. Mm-hmm. And that isn't the case with the Silent March. And actually there is a culture of please be respectful enough to come down and just talk about Grenfell. Mm. Uh, and I think that is something that is...
3: Is, is there other things that, that we can do? It feels like at the minute there's a lot around, you know, the community, the survivors, um, you know, the governments, the local authorities. Is there anything that, you know, what we can do as individuals to help support what's going on with these communities to um, keep their keep their, their stories coming out? Is there anything that we can go to or support or are people still taking donations? What's happening at the minute? Um, look,
5: I think, I think there's a number of things that people can do long-term and it all depends on what your sphere of influence is and where you feel you have agency. Um, I think one of the key things that is a challenge to anyone who considers themselves to work in the world of media is to kind of create the platform for people to speak. Right Now, a year ago, there was the media circus that came And a year later, there's another media circus that came. And in that period, there was a space where you could have trained up local young people to fulfill that function and not have that antagonism again. And nobody in the media had the foresight to be able to do this. They fall over themselves to do the thing that is the grand gesture that looks good for the short-termism, but they don't build the infrastructure that can make that community empower itself and feed them because this is a long-term thing if this goes the way of hillsborough it's going to go on for 20 years Mm -hmm. and we know how much media attention there was and there's an industry that's constructed around these things because so much attention goes towards them so why not empower them so i'm trying to kickstart a few projects of that nature and i'm trying to develop a kind of youth-led media in the area because i think that that would be one of the things that could really work because it has to fulfill that function now there is that challenge that i think comes with local reportage we've Really, we suffer from nationally now because there isn't the money for it anymore. It's the same thing with investigative journalism. It's that quick clickbait Mm -hmm. that really. And so we have to think of the way of driving attention towards the things that matter. And I think that putting that into young people's hands and looking at vlogging and trying to engage that kind of critical thinking through the kind of YouTube generation could bear fruit in a way that actually means that there's money that's being made and revenue, but also engagement with local issues that then have national significance, right? And if we can try and think of those type of interventions, but there's loads of things that can be done. So but that's what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a valuable contribution, but we'll see what else comes.
2: Yeah. Do you think if we could do that, if we could really actually tell these stories from within the communities and actually get them out there, more pressure would be brought than onto politicians to listen and to respond?
5: I think everybody who is engaged has a really profound truth that if they tell their story, right? Uh, I mean, I saw people do superhuman things for days, weeks, um, and a local authority that did very little, right? Just telling that story, telling the story of what we expected and what was, what was met and the reserves that people found in themselves if you really account for that it's a really powerful thing i try I, I organized a public meeting a couple of weeks ago to try and get people to do this after seeing the bitter fruits that can come from allowing somebody else to do that right andrew Hagen took those of people's testimonies to write the piece yeah. he did and you can contort history by building an emotive picture and then taking people on that journey and the thing is that if you, everybody is empowered enough to be able to say look here's a public archive here is what i said here's a, a, in its totality here's the transcript or whatever it is, then you're not going to be able to have that media manipulation. I think there's a lot of things that if people, if that kind of infrastructure was built, we wouldn't have those violations that people feel so often with the media and the, and actually it would provide a space for people that really need to get say one of the survivors to speak we can say well here is a repository of them you don't you don't own it but you can use it for this purpose right and really there could have been like this really interesting because Andrew Hagen in his piece says that RBKC need more press officers but the community didn't have any and when you've got that much media attention right now, Brentford United have formed and there's a press office there, but actually the, the people in North Kensington are still there being picked off by the media whenever they come. And they just write to Rome, go with the camera and pick up your raw emotion. And I think that there's a lot of challenges that, present themselves between journalism and its subject, especially it, because it was so close to home it was in london i mean i'm a videographer as well right yeah. on the day grenfell happened i could have filmed stories and sold them and made money i didn't i kept my camera in my po- I kept camera in my bag i was very ashamed to, be, uh, to have a camera at that moment in time because it was very much an us and them dynamic the minute you mm-hmm. showed that type of thing and there was that kind of scavenger voyeurism that i just think was such a horrible thing to live through that i kind of I was ashamed of it for a long time, and then I kind of look, I look back over some of the stuff I got in the early days, and there wasn't that much, because I, and I wish I filmed more, because I saw so much, that I, but I think that if people kind of really engaged with those processes, you could really have something long-term that bridges those gaps between the journalism and the community, because it really does depend upon a kind of localism and a kind of empowerment of the local media, the local blogs, so that you can kind of pick up on these stories. Yeah. And Jon Snow and people have said it in their kind of statements after Grenfell but I think it would be really nice to see the media really respond and build some infrastructure not just for the North Kensington but, but nationally always, yeah
3: there's always that distrust like you say there's a, a momentous you know event that happens but you know nine times out of ten the media is that media circus when you settle and you're right there's, there's so much of that that needs to be almost documented to be then turned into the stories that need to be shared and need to be heard to create change to to give you know those the truth to that situation
5: i mean a lot of the stuff is done in abstraction right so the editor sits in the newsroom and says go get me a soundbite on x right and so you're on you're in the field and you're going well they're talking about x y and z And you're like well no i don't want that right so sometimes you'll just pick it up and there'll be vox pops and you'll just dismiss them and put the report together that you want right at that moment in time it would be really good for that media organization to say okay we've got all of this footage do the community want it is there a space that we can put all of our rushes so that these can actually be used Mm -hmm. that people can get their stories out but instead it, it just sits in data banks right yeah They privatize our stories, and then it sits in a data bank and never gets used. I mean, it's disgraceful. Mm. That in and of itself, I think, is disgraceful. And I would really like all of this stuff, because it will get sold, right? It will get sold to the Getty Images or the APs or whoever, Mm. and they will monetize the telling of this story. So if I, in 20 years' time, think, actually, I want to make a proper film on Grenfell, I'm going to have to pay how many people, Mm. right? Unless I filmed it myself, Right. And I think that there's, there were these things that if the media were honest about what they were doing, they, aren't, they, they could kind of create a resource for us, for community yeah. journalists. Just basic operating procedures that I never saw.
2: Interesting. Mm. I'd love to see what happens from it. Daniel, just finally, what would you like to see come out of this inquiry? And do you think it's possible?
5: Um, I think the inquiry has begun in a very powerful way and i think mm-hmm. that there's been some very big home truths that have already come out and a lot of clarifications that have already come out now it's got restricted terms of reference and that's always been a problem it's politically directed coming through the home office and Theresa May. Mm-hmm. we know mm-hmm. right but uh, well within those limited terms of reference there are a lot of home truths that are going to come out and the bereaved and survivors are fully engaged within that process and solidarity with them extends to having faith enough in the public inquiry but also to keep that pressure going on the outside of it to tell our truths and to make sure that the kind of media don't spin the other story and things don't turn right which we're already seeing to a certain extent with the Mm -hmm. fire brigade being thrown under the bus right with the turn that's happening which means that the loss of life is blamed solely on the fire service which would be Reprehensible, in my opinion, right? Mm-hmm. So there were things that we have to do, um, but I wouldn't call it a whitewash, right? I think that you look at what the opening statements were were made by some of the lawyers. They're bringing race and class into it. We've yeah. had the revela- revelation that there was a procurement policy of RBKC that didn't yeah. have any fire compliance, right? And we know that Salitech's targeted uh, the the sale of that insulation to a local authority that had lax fire safety at best right that is criminal negligence that should come out in the inquest if we go through that process there should be criminal prosecutions it's going to be a slow time right but i think if you connect those dots i don't think you can just put i don't think there's many ways that you can see accidental death here right i don't think that if you tell the truth you're not going to come across the fact that a redevelopment wrapped that building in thirty liters of petrol Right? and the reason that was done was because fire safety standards were being torn apart because of deregulation and exploited by private enterprise who saw opportunity and didn't see people's lives at danger they just it went out of the spreadsheet excel spreadsheets don't account for the risk of human life enough and there was not a risk assessment done there wasn't compliance There should have been the independent investigations there was a culture of contempt that led to something abominable happening in the center of one of the richest cities in the world and it should never ever happen again
2: so you think we're going to see criminal prosecutions for manslaughter from this
5: i hope so right yeah. i hope so i don't think that you can look at this with a rational mind and not see it. i think you'll see corporate manslaughter i think that's the way they'll go but i think that uh, there is criminal negligence that's my personal opinion
2: fantastic this is Daniel Rennick youth worker and videographer uh, talking to us about Grenfell a year on Daniel thank you so much for joining us one two three four this has been the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me Harriet Minter Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton if you want to hear more from us you can come follow us on social media at Badass Women's Hour HR um, or leave us a review and tell us how much you love us we really need to feel the love